This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Thursday, December 13th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Executives of Amazon, fairly large company, normally located in the Northwest. Officials of New York City, fairly large city, located in the East, got together at an angry city council meeting and they hashed it out. Speaker of the New York City Council, Corey Johnson, was primed for next day delivery of a can of whoop ass on America's wealthiest company. How will this affect our overburdened transportation system in an area where infrastructure is already limited? The only transportation piece of this project I've seen involves a helipad. I'm serious. This is like something out of the onion. It is unclear if the council actually has any authority to do anything to stop the online retailer from becoming the kings or the emperors of Queens. But it was an opportunity for backers of the deal, like the mayor himself, to try to get some version of a counter narrative going out there. Let's recap what the narrative is. The narrative is that New York Post cover of Jeff Bezos holding bags of money flying off on a helicopter. Okay, the helicopter part is true, but Bezos doesn't hold bags of money himself. He has a guy for that. Still, Jimmy Van Bramer, who represents the district that Amazon is in, perpetuated some New York Post-esque caricature. The mayor rightfully talks about ending the tale of two cities. Yet he is cheerleading a backroom deal that literally pays Jeff Bezos to build his gleaming tower in the sky. They're not literally paying Jeff Bezos at all. And I I do believe that a lot of New Yorkers think that this is what's going on, that they'll write a check to New York City or have it taken out of their wages and some of that amount will go to Amazon. No, although that is actually the deal with Foxconn in Wisconsin. But with New York, the situation is the city will make a lot of, lot of, lot of money from Amazon being there. But without a deal to lure them there, it would have made a lot of, lot of, lot of, lot of money. Amazon, by the way, has all the money, so you can't take all the money. But I was desperate for this point to be made, that Amazon was going to be giving the city, paying the city, you know, in terms of taxes, tons of money. And there was a chance that it would be made because Speaker Johnson really did try his best to establish that there in this meeting was a chance to truly hear from Amazon and to have Amazon hear the concerns of New York's elected officials. He even tried semi-successfully, better than any elected official I've ever seen, to rationally talk protesters out of disruption. If you want to come to New York City and be a good neighbor, you should be willing to come here and testify and work with us and talk to us in an open way. So I look forward to this conversation today. It's an important conversation to have. But that's when the president of the city's Economic Development Corporation talked. And instead of hammering the benefits and creating mental images which might resonate, he adopted a style more actuarial than adversarial and just dryly listed the numbers. Amazon is committed to creating at least 25,000 jobs over the next 10 years, with potential to expand to 40,000 in 15. It is projected to deliver over $27.5 billion in tax revenue to the city and state over the next quarter century. Yes. Do you get it? Do you hear what he's saying? A billion dollars a year, over one billion dollars every year. 
You know what you could do with that? If you wanted to, I mean, this wouldn't be the best thing to spend it on, but you could give every New York City teacher a $13,000 raise if you wanted to, or you could double the amount of money in New York City, which is a state and city subsidy, the subway repair fund, more than double. Or remember when LeBron James got all the praise, deservedly so, for opening a school for at-risk kids? Using Amazon's tax money, you could open 125 of those schools every year. Instead, what did we get? We just went right past the benefits. They talked about 25,000 jobs. That's more abstract. There's a natural counter-argument. Yeah, but the jobs aren't going to New Yorkers. By the way, when our country uses that, we call it jingoism. These jobs aren't going to Americans. Why would we allow foreigners to take these jobs? But when it's on the municipal level, I don't know. We still feel, or at least a lot of people on the city council, still feel pretty emboldened to say, but these jobs wouldn't be going to real New Yorkers. Yeah, they would. They'd move here, and then they'd become New Yorkers, like, I don't know, most of the people in New York have done. Luckily, there was tons of talk about the Uniform Land Use Review Procedure or the ULERP. And they were going to go through ULERP. And we, we had two new schools coming as a result of the, the two ULERPs that were planned. So I'm, I'm going to ask again, if, if you had to go through ULERP, would you not have come to New York City? All this ULERP talk did, however, give rise to the best municipal procedure pun-based burn that I've ever heard. You've taken the L in ULERP and replaced it with an S, and you're trying to usurp the power of the people to be able to say what is fair and what is good in the totality of what we want to see in New York City. Get it? Usurp. And that from council member Inez Barron was delivered with more precision than any drone Amazon could ever imagine. On the show today, I spiel about Donald Trump's sit-down with Harris Faulkner of Fox. As Faulkner once said, With Donald Trump, the past isn't dead, it's not even past, and sadly, it may not be indictable until he leaves office. But first, the film, First Man, is the story of Neil Armstrong. It stars Ryan Gosling as Armstrong and Claire Foy as his wife, Janet. It focuses on many Earthbound episodes in Armstrong's life, primarily the death of his daughter, Karen, when she was two. The screenwriter, Josh Singer, consulted Rick, Neil Armstrong's son, about the script. He got a strong sense of Armstrong's home life that way. He then poured through technical manuals to get the details correct. And he and director Damien Chazelle made an artistic choice that instead of depicting Armstrong planting the U.S. flag on the moon, which would become a silly controversy on Fox and Talk Radio, they had him paying tribute to his dead daughter in a very touching scene. It's all contained in our interview with Josh Singer, which is up next. Academy Award-winning writer Josh Singer started on The West Wing, moved on to a Julian Assange film called The Fifth Estate. It was about Assange, not funded by him. And then he did Spotlight, and then he did The Post, and now the Neil Armstrong story, First Man. So, let's, let's go back. He starts his film career with the most controversial anti-hero in media, then sort of works backwards through two of the greatest accomplishments in journalism history and has now landed on perhaps the greatest hero of the post-war age. But 
whereas Spotlight has too many rich characters to get to. And Assange is, you know, Assange. Neil Armstrong is a special problem. A bit reserved, shall we say. Hello, Josh. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, uh, we've been watching Sound of Music at home with my two-and-a-half-year-old, and and, uh, I've been saying, how do you deal with a problem like Neil Armstrong? (laughs) So, yes, so this is my first question, which is every actor loves to play Iago or the villains or the flawed heroes. I mean, the anti-hero is all we get these days. But I think about... I can't really actually think of a good biopic of George Washington, another possibly taciturn guy who just seems like a true hero. It seems harder to take a guy who, sorry, I know the warts and all, but here's the problem. There aren't that many warts. Right, right. You know, the warts weren't Walter White level warts, right? They weren't, right. you know, Neil, Neil, you know, was, it was a pretty straight arrow. You know, the warts, if anything, were that he was difficult to access. You know, I mean, Rick would say to us that, you know, oftentimes he'd ask a question and Neil just wouldn't answer. Uh, Janet routinely said that no was a big argument from Neil. You know, the word no. <laughs> I'd say, though, that there's a there's a larger thing at play here when you're taking on a hero of the magnitude uh, and renown of Neil Armstrong, which is that people have an idea of who he is in their head. And oftentimes they don't want to hear anything else. I mean, you know, on a deeper level, what was the flag nonsense all about? And I, I shouldn't call it nonsense because, you know, uh, this is really what it, what it is about. People want, uh, want their heroes to be a certain way. Right. Uh, people want their icons to be a certain way, the way they have them in their heads. And they, if there's going to be a movie about Neil Armstrong, we should show him planting the flag on the moon, you know, because that's what the iconography is. Never mind it took them almost an hour to, plant the flag and it was almost a debacle because they couldn't get rigged up. Imagine, uh, imagine if you depicted it that way, all the guff you'd get. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Like how it actually happened. What are you right. saying? Is Correct. Damien Chazelle Correct. in this country legally? <laughs> and, and, and for that to, you know, it's one of these things where it hurts the middle of the country. It hurts folks that, you know, who could learn, right, and who yeah. could be brought up by this. And, and this it's is kind really of an a, insult to Ohio, isn't it? Right. Correct. <laughs> exactly. And, and this is a uniting, it's a film that's supposed to unite. It's a film that's supposed to be for everyone. Everyone can agree he was a hero. Everyone can agree he sacrificed. Everyone can agree oh, maybe this is what we need to do if, we ha- if we're going to tackle great problems. And, and, you know, people like Ted Cruz and Rubio and Trump took that away from yeah. us. I you know, also they, don't... They, they, they took that away from the middle of the country. Just like these guys, you know, I mean, they make these ridiculous promises and then don't fulfill them. I mean, who's getting, you know, I mean, you really think Trump is helping the middle of the country. I mean, come on now. And I also really think, I mean, there are movies that become an aspect to them, become a cultural flashpoint. And sometimes you can see that it's legitimate. I'm thinking of Munich, the last shot, they pan to the World Trade Center. You could say that's heavy handed. Why do you have to be anti-Israel at this point? I can understand why that might upset a fair-minded viewer. I honestly do not believe that any person who watched this movie, who watched when the flag wasn't being shown, what was being shown is Neil Armstrong reaching into his past and letting go of uh, a a, grief. a totem, grief letting go, grief letting go of a totem from his dead daughter. And I, yeah. I, I, I'm telling you, I really don't think that any actual human being 
Ted Cruz included, could say, oh, I can't believe they didn't show the flag. Right. Yeah. And and here here's the thing. You know, it's funny because you, you bring up Munich, which, uh, by the way, is a great movie. You yeah. go back and watch that movie. That is just, I think it's some of Stephen's best work. And frankly, you know, I love that he's being provocative. He's just trying to get us to think right at the end of that movie, I think. Yeah. If a culture cannot have a conversation with its artists, then we are lost. And look, I wrote a whole annotated screenplay about this movie, about the choices we made, where we took license, and why, we, Why you know, uh, the bracelet you just mentioned is conjecture, Jim Hansen's conjecture, not mine, but I sort of detail that in the book. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, because I thought, and I do think we are being provocative about this icon. We are being provocative about the space program. There's a whole narrative around the space program that's very triumphalist, right? That is that these astronauts were just heroes and didn't suffer. And it's just not the case when you look at the, the real narrative. And so, you know, it was remarkable to me this week, actually, George Herbert Walker Bush accomplished so many things and was uh, lived so many lives, you know, uh, uh, head of the CIA, vice president, president, father of a president. I mean, so many lives that he lived. And the one story I kept hearing over and over was about his daughter who had passed away, who I'd heard nothing about, and that he prayed for her every day. I mean, you know, it, and, and so when you really look at a man's life, right? What defines a man's life? It felt like that that was, you know, incredibly defining in a way that none of us really knew. And I think Neil, similarly, that's what we were trying to get at. You know, I had no idea Neil had lost a daughter and I had no idea how, how big a role I think emotionally that played in his life until I read Jim Hansen's book. And so seeing that other side of an icon it was incredibly challenging to get to, but I found it incredibly fascinating, and I think it's what's really interesting about about the movie. Do we know that it played a huge part in his life because of how Neil talked about it afterwards? Because at the time, and even in the, the years afterwards, the, the portion of his life depicted in your film, there's the line where they're coming back from a funeral of some of the other uh, Apollo astronauts or test pilots, and, and his wife says, we got good at funerals that year, talking about a past year. And she's asked, does Neil ever talk about Karen? And, then, and yeah. Janet says, no, never, right? right? Which, right. which was very much the case. I mean, he really didn't talk about her. And yet, when you talk about his reaction at the time, you know, June's sister says he was just devastated. When you lose someone that, I mean, I have a two and a half year old. I can't bear the thought of anything happening. You know, he gets a bruise and I, I lose my mind. You yeah. Know? Uh, yeah. So in some ways, you know, I think on a subconscious level, the idea of returning to Karen on the moon felt you know, I mean, the only thing I can imagine as odd as being on the moon is the oddness of that kind of, you know, passing. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, though, I wonder when you write it, it can be delivered in so many ways. Uh, you could you could tell through direction the tone that it's meant to be said. It can be delivered as if it quite clearly hurts her. It can be delivered stoically. I think think she delivered it with a little bit of dispassion that bled into a little bit of wistfulness. But, you know, obviously, as as a screenwriter, so much depends upon the interpretation of the lines. But at other times, it's more than depends. It's it's everything. Everything is how that line is delivered. Um, so what did you think? What did you? Ex- how did you expect that line to go? And what was your reaction after you saw it as it was delivered? So so that was uh, you picked the scene that was one of my favorite moments of the entire shoot. 
uh, oddly, when we shot in Atlanta, it was the coldest winter in Atlanta's history. It actually snowed on the moon. Um, huh. we, we lost a couple days of production because Damien shot the moon outside, which is one of the reasons it looks so great. Um, but uh, at, at a quarry, but um, but so I was up on a on a rig and um, and it was freezing, and yet here was Claire doing take after take and just killing it in, in a way that. No take was the same. Every yeah. take was slightly different. And great actors, what they do is, you know, you give them ten takes, they'll give you ten different readings. You know, you know, the script to me is a blueprint, right? And what you hope is that you give your actors place to, you know, a safe place to play. You know, it was a bone of contention between Janet and Neil. I mean, Neil went right back to work, you know, after Karen died, never talked about Karen. And it was something that, you know, it's a combo of many things, you know, a little anger, a little wistfulness, you know, sadness and worry about her husband, you know, who, you know, she knows bottles things up. And is he really okay? A similarity between First Man and The Post is that each of those movies are in the shadow of these huge movies. The Post, of course, All the President's Men, and First Man, um, it, of course, evokes the right stuff. Maybe a combination of the movie plus the Tom Wolfe book, The Right Stuff. The director has choices, like uh, Spielberg kind of brings you right up to the events of All the President's Men and leaves it there. But did you do anything to get into that earlier space book or movie? Did you consult with it or did you try to put it aside and not even let it affect different tones in the movies, but not even let it affect your process? It's funny. Uh, I tried very hard not to watch uh, both Right Stuff and Apollo 13, um, which I guess cast the largest shadows for us. Right. Um, You know, Tom Wolfe's book at the time was really widely disliked by the astronaut corps because he broke through the propaganda that was the Life magazine propaganda that was, you know, everyone's sort of charming and great marriages and whatnot. And, you know, he did it, you know, with a lot of tawdry stuff. Right. And then also a little bit of focus on, you know, how dangerous this was. We wanted to full-on focus on the danger. I wanted to ask you about Buzz Aldrin, who has been on the gist and he came in and he looks exactly like George C. Scott and dresses like Ted Nugent. (laughs) And he's a wild man. This is his this is his persona circa, you know, uh, the last decade. But was he really like that back then? Or did you perhaps exaggerate a little as a counterpoint to the uh, personality of Neil? No, you know, it's funny because this is where uh, this is where sometimes I, I wish, you know, I could impart some of my research to the critics. <laughs> Anthony Lane in The New Yorker wrote something like, oh, poor Buzz Aldrin. What, how, why, why are they taking a shot at him? And, and in point of fact, you know, everyone you talk to repeatedly said the same thing, that Buzz had no filter. He never had a filter. And, and moreover, in the movie, he only speaks the truth. Right? It's, it's sort of this great tool as a screenwriter because he was a very, very bright guy. So everything he says is actually 100% true. He <laughs> right. just says it at the wrong time. Right, which makes it which more is, uncomfortable for everyone right, around them. Yeah. Which is what we were told this was Buzz's M.O. And in fact, you know, it's funny because Robert, who I mentioned earlier, Robert Perlman, who's close with Buzz, I asked him the night before we showed the movie to Buzz, I said, you know, should I be nervous about Buzz seeing the movie? He said, oh, no, there have been much worse depictions. And, and that's true. And, and I got to say, when Buzz came and saw the movie, there are two moments that are, that are awkward. One where at Elliot sees Wake, 
He talks about the fact that it was Elliot C's fault, which, by the way, any astronaut will tell you. Uh, and it was written up that it was pilot error. Um, and when Buzz saw that scene, he turned to you know his buddy Don Camp, who was there with him, and said, "Start explaining exactly why it was Elliot's fault, right. and that that was true." But and see, then that's the, so telling and, of his personality. He didn't explain. Correct. Here's why I ruined a funeral. It's correct. He, he explained why I was right. Yeah, correct. And and similarly, you know, at a later point. You know, when, when Buzz in the movie, and this is one of my, my favorite lines, and Corey does it so well, and he says, I'm just saying what you're all thinking. You know, the real Buzz looked up at the screen and said, that's right, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so to me, you know, I, I, again, I, I think it was a pretty fair portrait of him. And, and by the way, you know, I have the utmost respect for Buzz. He is super bright. He still is, is I mean, his mind is like a razor. There were moments we were in the LEM, and we need to know, was there a light for the engine ascent arm? You know, to let them know that the breaker was not in. It was a scene we shot, which sadly didn't make the movie. And we couldn't get anyone to give us an answer. Frank Hughes couldn't quite remember. So I called Buzz. He's like, nope, no light. And literally then walked me through that whole process wow. of because, you know, they, they had a debacle there on the last day. But, you know, and, and frankly, some of my most goosebumpy moments over the last four years were, you know, having Buzz take me back through uh he literally talked me through the landing which was you know much more harrowing than people realize uh you know i I was arguing with one of the historians over at the smithsonian today where he was like oh it wasn't that bad they had 30 seconds of fuel left (laughs) they were supposed to have two minutes of fuel left i mean 30 seconds of fuel is not a whole lot when you know if you crash you can't get back up off the moon and so i talked about this with buzz and i said you know in the transcript you don't say very much to neil we had to augment just slightly so that people would know what was going on i said you don't say very much to neil about him running out of fuel he said well you wouldn't want to distract your commander he said, but I did give him some pretty strong body English, which to me was the greatest line of perhaps all time. Uh, and so that's what we have Corey do. Corey gives Ryan some pretty good body English. Yeah. <laughs> good direction. Josh Singer is the Academy Award winning screenwriter behind Spotlight. His new film is First Man. And I should plug the fact that the aforementioned annotated screenplay to First Man, co-written by James Hansen and Josh Singer, is also out if you were as into this film as I was. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. And now the spiel. President Trump, knowing that he's been floundering in the polls and beset by the Mueller investigation, did what he needed to do. He sat down with an accomplished journalist in a freewheeling interview where no topics were off the table. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. He went on Fox. He talked to Harris Faulkner, where insightful questions and truthful answers were tabled. At one point, the president just had to correct Harris Faulkner when she tried to rob him of a bit of the stock market run-up that's occurred since Election Day. But in your presidency, we're up nearly 25%. Yeah, 32% even. 32%. What's Harris doing trying to cheat him out of that 7%? I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that the actual rise in percentage terms of the Dow since Election Day was 23.5%. And by the way, the S&P has risen 16.3%. 
I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. By pointing this out, I suppose an intern might come over and take this microphone out of my hands. Anyway, it is nice to be interviewed by someone who seems to be asking questions, but really is just an extension of your press shop. And because Harris Faulkner is black, I think we can all put aside that nastiness, that untruth about Trump being really truculent when female African-American reporters ask him questions. It's not that they're female. It's not that they're African-Americans. It's that they're rude. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is how you ask a proper question. What do you love about being president? And that is why Times Magazine person of the year, the Guardians. But unlike those other journalists who got in trouble by their coverage, those ham and eggers, Harris Faulkner knows how to avoid the old bone saw. For one thing, she shows respect for the office, as with this gentle pushback. Including the environment. Did you see last year we were the only country that had fewer emissions despite the success of the Your country. critics would say things differently. Oh, so- no, because- your critics could differ. Yes, your critics could differ. If by critics you mean your own Department of Energy or just the truth itself. Yesterday, the DOE issued a report saying energy-related carbon dioxide emissions are projected to rise 3% in 2018. Faulkner went beyond the usual softball questions and obsequiousness and failure to enforce basic standards of truth that we've come to know and love via Fox interviews. She served as kind of like a a legal laundering service because she did this trick where Donald Trump would say something outrageous or untrue and she would back it up by saying, yes, I did the interview to prove that. And you realize that Trump only thought this untrue thing was true because he saw that very interview that Harris Faulkner did. It was quite the unvirtuous cycle. Let me give you an example. Here's one. That's according to the top And I've people. interviewed people who've told me this. I They're mean, not you watch the program, so you know. So what happened is- Like Trump said, top, top people. And then this one. Trump didn't violate campaign finance laws, and neither did the president. Trump ex-aid. So they're saying that... Oh, wait. I interviewed him on my program the other day. That's Han von Spakowski. Yes, he says that. Wait. Harris Faulkner interviewed Hanze von Spakowski? Indeed, she did. And Hanze von Spakowski said that what Michael Cohen did wasn't even a campaign violation. Didn't even violate the law. We really got to get this information to Cohen because he just pled guilty and is going to jail despite the opinion of the esteemed Hanze von Spakowski. And then... Trump did the thing where he once again perpetuated the myth that he did really well with women voters. He actually lost the vote among women by at least 11%, which is tied for the worst performance in terms of gender gap in presidential election history. But here he is bragging. I think I have the greatest base in the history of politics. I have people that I love and that love me, frankly, that includes a lot of women. Uh, I got a tremendous percentage of women last time. Remember, I wasn't get women. I wasn't going to. I, used I interviewed to, some of the women for Trump. Oh. Yes. You know what this, this interview did for me? It raised a question. And the question is this. How wise is it for Donald Trump only to speak to his base, only to try to convince the people who already believe in him? He's probably right that he could say anything to them and simply say black is white and purple is mauve, and they'll believe him. But maybe if months ago or a year ago, he ever tried to expand the base of people that he was communicating to, maybe he'd be better off. Maybe he wouldn't be doing these ridiculous interviews on a ridiculous TV station where the upside is just trying to win over the minority of the population who aren't going to save your job in the long run. The counter argument to that is 
given the set of facts, I think making these bad arguments to the deeply impressionable Trump voter slash Fox viewer was the only play he had. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. And they adhere to the best practices of bifurcated uniform regional land use review procedure, or burlap. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She always sticks to systematic, unincorporated, reconstituted use review procedures, or syrup. The gist, as always, ever engaged in plenipotentiary uniform review protocols, local, national, urban planning, or purple nerp. Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening.